My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Aziz Chaudhry. When we think about social movements, often what we think about is action. Petitions signed, banners unfurled, meetings disrupted, strikes waged, land reclaimed, and so on. When we think about knowledge, teaching, learning, and research, that is, about the various components of knowledge production and circulation and of intellectual life, we aren't likely to instinctively jump to thinking about movements. And certainly for most of us, those things don't bring to mind sit-ins or marches or blockades or anything like that. But today's guest argues that maybe those things do go together. Aziz Chaudhry has been involved in social movements for around 30 years. Though he grew up in England, his political involvement began when he lived in Aotearoa, or New Zealand, in the context of struggles that would later be given labels like anti-globalization and global justice, particularly in parts of that movement that were shaped early and strongly by anti-colonial influences. Chaudhry's involvement has continued ever since in a wide range of movements and places, and much more recently he decided to take his politics into the academy. He's currently an associate professor in the Department of Integrated Studies and Education at McGill University in Montreal, and a visiting professor at the University of Johannesburg in South Africa. In his new book, Learning Activism, the Intellectual Life of Contemporary Social Movements from University of Toronto Press, Chaudhry discusses in detail how doing research, teaching people, learning things, and collectively articulating new ideas about the world are absolutely integral to social movements and the actions that they take. Unlike a lot of scholarly work about movements, this is a book firmly grounded in the needs of movements themselves, and it strongly articulates the importance of learning from movements and movement participants, not just about their experiences, not just about their actions, but about their analysis, their ideas, their knowledge, their theory of the social world. He talks with me about his own involvement in activism and organizing, about his new book, and about the ways in which teaching, learning, research, and the production of new ideas are woven tightly through the everyday activities of social movements. We spoke by Skype from London, England. I'm Aziz Chaudhry. These days I'm an associate professor at the Department of Integrated Studies at McGill University, and I'm also a visiting professor in the Centre for Education, Rights and Transformation at the University of Johannesburg in South Africa. And I suppose besides that, I've also been involved with a lot of different struggles, a lot of different activist and organising contexts in Aotearoa, New Zealand, where I used to be in the broader Asia-Pacific, globally, I guess, and then in North America, and very much continue to be trying to do all of those things. The book Learning Activism, the Intellectual Life of Contemporary Social Movements that came out a few months ago with the University of Toronto Press very much comes out of my own experiences and reflections on what and whose knowledge counts within social movements and within social movement struggles, where and how do people learn. There are all these kind of questions that have been swirling around for a long time in my head and lived questions and tensions for a long time. So 
the book very much came out of that history and those ideas and trying to really put front and centre the fact that a lot of really important intellectual labour takes place in organising in activist contexts and perhaps compartmentalising the world into learning and education and research and knowledge production and action isn't always a very helpful way to think about things and perhaps sometimes undermines perhaps a more dialectical kind of approach that sees learning and action often being intrinsically part of each other. I've been involved in what we could call activism, I suppose, for getting on to about 30 years and my politics very much came out of broadly anti-racism, anti-colonial ideas that were shaped through experiences of racism when I was growing up in the UK, then moving to Aotearoa, New Zealand, and looking at the ways in which in liberal democracies like the UK or Aotearoa, New Zealand or Canada, there's often this national myth-making narrative about notions of democracy, notions of history too, that don't really engage with ongoing legacies of colonialism in different kinds of ways. I became very involved in what was to become the quote-unquote global justice movement or the anti-globalisation movement. I don't think we called it that. You know, the late 80s, early 90s in Aotearoa, New Zealand, dealing with both the colonial realities of a country that was built on the dispossession of indigenous peoples of Tangata Whenua Māori in the South Pacific, looking at different kinds of colonial relations, neocolonialism of Australia, New Zealand governments, other governments, the British, the French, the US with their kind of nuclear colonialism. And looking at the free market policies tried and tested under Pinochet's Chile, then used in Aotearoa, New Zealand, before many of the other OECD countries had had those things imposed on them, deregulation, privatisation, so-called free trade, and being part of small groups that were struggling to educate and organise and make some of those links and connections between the local and the global and the historical processes we had the privilege of having some really great Māori comrades and thinkers and activists who were saying, look, what people are experiencing now as being this new thing called globalisation or free trade or whatever is not so new. We need to understand that process historically, not just as some sort of intellectual exercise, but actually if we're serious about struggling against these kind of processes and the institutions and the politics and economics which drives them. Within all that, we were trying to organise against things like the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which was the free trade agreement that birthed the World Trade Organisation in 95, APEC, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, and Multilateral Agreement on Investment, at the same time as also being linked into groups and, and movements that were struggling for, particularly in the Pacific, self-determination, East Timor, West Papua, Bougainville, and of course Indigenous peoples in Aotearoa, New Zealand and Australia. So in all of those things, the action and the education and the research went hand in hand. And in the course of doing that work, in the course of trying to popularise, you learn as you go, really. You learn through both explicit and implicit spaces and places of doing something that we could call in some way education or research. Maybe they don't fit with the nice, neat labels the research and the education was very much tied up with action. Reflecting on all of that politically, I learned far more from experiences that would be quite hard for, let's say, an outside scholar or educationalist, let's say, to label as being educational. 
that informal incidental learning sometimes when you're stuffing envelopes or you know being on demonstrations the intense and sometimes quite conflictual discussions and arguments that happened in organizing and other meetings the contradictions within NGOs non-governmental organizations and community groups and different kinds of coalitions about what we stood for and the sense too that very often in these alternative spaces oftentimes it would seem that the same power relations or very similar power relations about you know racism patriarchy class would get replicated and i think that was the sort of starting point in some ways for me ending up in the academic world so to speak where i was able to stand back from but not retreat from the politics that i've been part of for a long time and try to document some of that stuff and think through some of that stuff in a way which hopefully might be useful for other people at least as a sort of a contribution to a conversation lots of other things to say i mean i've been involved with yeah migrant immigrant worker struggles in different ways i've been very involved with trying to get information or popular education resources pulled together about um Gary Kinsman's got this great sentence in a couple of things he's written about how we don't necessarily in movements just forget things but that there's a social organization of forgetting which we actually need to go past. But yeah, I mean that sort of situates to some extent this book. So maybe a good place to start talking about the book is the subtitle, The Intellectual Life of Contemporary Social Movements. It's my sense that a lot of people, including a lot of people who are themselves involved in movements, might not be quite sure what that means. So why don't you talk a bit about what the intellectual life of social movements is and talk about why you think it's important for us to think about it, to learn about it, and to maybe be a bit more deliberate in how we go about doing the various things that comprise it. I think there's often a tendency to sort of say, oh, well, you know, such and such a campaign or a movement or a struggle is action. It's a political thing. It's not necessarily an educative thing or a place or space where knowledge actually gets produced. Although I think there have been lots of people who have talked about and written about those kinds of things in different sorts of ways. And so I very much see those spaces, whether they're the incidental spaces of activism of your, you know, putting posters together or being on demonstrations or things like that, or more explicit or obvious non-formal spaces, workshops, etc., etc. But alongside that, things like confrontations with the state, the need to try to have conversations and explain what's going on in a particular organizing context to let's say people that you're trying to form alliances with that there's an enormous amount of intellectual work that happens there and i think what often happens rather broadly in society is this idea of intellectual work being somehow qualitatively different from or delinked from actions and struggles and i'm not saying that somehow all activist spaces and all movement spaces produce great critical intellectual knowledge and work any more than I think that could be said for any place, including, you know, the university. All knowledge is partial, I think. What, however, I think is really important is to think about how in the course of doing things, whether it's mundane, everyday struggles for dignity, for better conditions for workers, for struggles for the land in relation to indigenous peoples and let's say landless campesinos, for example, or urban poor, 
that people learn stuff and that stuff that people learn often bears fruit in ways that we don't really acknowledge. And I'd argue that, and again, I don't think it's an original idea, that what we are invited to think about as being scholarship or intellectual thought often owes a great debt to collective knowledge that's been produced in struggle. In the academic world, we can think of lots of places and spaces and theories that without actual struggles, whether it's feminist struggles, whether it's third world liberation struggles, whether it's queer struggles, whether it's struggles of black, Latino, South Asian, indigenous, etc., etc., that the theory and the writing up of a lot of ideas would not have happened. And I think there's also an interesting relationship between the vibrancy of social movements and the visibility of social movements and often what happens in terms of intellectual trends or research interests. I don't think that's necessarily something that's always one way or another. I mean, we could argue, for example, that a lot of the work that probably feeds into repression, intelligence agencies, policing, etc., etc., has a relationship to mobilizations as well as work that's, let's say, more sympathetic to trying to think through alternative, more radical visions of how society and the world could be. I sort of like the way that Robin Kelly, who's a really brilliant black American historian in the States, writes about social movements and says, look, often people who are trying to write about or do scholarship on social movements are very much focused on whether or not the movement succeeded or not. But perhaps sometimes what we're missing here is looking at the knowledge and the visions and the ideas that get produced in those sort of struggles. And for me, that often has a sort of below the radar incremental effect on people's ideas about, you know, strategies and so on. So I do think of education and learning as being very broad. And I do think that anybody can be an intellectual. I was in a conversation recently with an academic. He sort of used the term raw experience. And he said, what do you see the process of raw experience being converted into theory? And I said, well, ordinary people theorize. I mean, that's the reality. Now, again, we can argue with the theories. We can say that they're not rigorous or this, that and the other. But I think the idea that theory or intellectual work is something that the brains of a movement do while the brawn are out on the streets or on the land or something like that. I think that's really problematic. And I think there have been lots of examples in history and in recent history, too, where that simply doesn't stack up, that there is that collective knowledge that happens in the course of collective struggles and trying to build spaces where people come together, organize, talk, debate, and then think about, okay, how do we change this? And that's a bit different, I think, from thinking of education and intellectual work as being something that's perhaps happening in somewhat more explicitly education-focused activities like workshops and teach-ins and things like that. Those things can be useful, but I actually think that it's that below-the-radar, incidental, informal learning in the struggle, what some comrades in places like South Africa talk about as struggle knowledge, that we often miss. And I think that's the stuff, too, that I think is sometimes buried in all of the stuff that some of us who are hoarders keep in plastic bags and boxes under the bed and in the spare drawers or in the closets. Things that got produced, you know, newsletters and bulletins and posters and leaflets and things like that that often got produced at the time. And now sometimes a number of us have been talking about how it's interesting to go back to all of that stuff from whenever it was, the 80s, the 90s, a few years ago, whatever, and sort of dig out some of the ideas and the debates and the stuff that perhaps we've forgotten about to try to see out of that informal kind of archival activist or movement knowledge 
what there is that's there that might actually be useful to contemporary and future struggles. And I think that's one of the things I like to try to do a little bit in the context of teaching at a university and being able to work with students is supporting people who actually want to do that work often about their own community struggles in the context where there aren't nice, neat histories, or if there are, those nice, neat histories leave out a lot of stuff. So you sometimes hear in some movement contexts or in other places about that importance of learning and thinking and theorizing the world starting from our own experience. And you talked about that too, both today and in the book. But you also wrote about how that isn't enough, that to really understand the world, we need to engage with other people's experiences and with the kind of ideas and theories and knowledge that other people have produced in past movements. Talk more about that. Being able to look critically and think critically about history, context, politics in relation to the struggles that we're in or the organising context that we're in and connect with other groups, other people who are maybe not the same as us um, can be really valuable. There are lots of histories of solidarities that we don't know about and don't remember. And again, it's interesting to think about why it is that those earlier histories, I'm thinking here, for example, in the Canadian context of the histories of anti-racist struggle, the long histories of indigenous resistance that go back centuries at the point of colonisation, obviously the ways in which sometimes at the margins, if you like, of bigger social movements, some of the ideas that have come forth from there have become really important. To give an example, I remember coming up to Vancouver in 1997, first time in North America, was at the People's Summit on APEC, which was supposed to be a sort of an open democratic space for people to talk about, you know, democracy and human rights and corporate greed and all kinds of different things. And looking at the intellectual policing that took place with people from NGOs and from quasi-government organisations who were quite clearly shutting down those of us who raised questions about Indigenous sovereignty in the context of a mobilisation and a forum that was supposed to be about corporate globalisation and so on. And looking at those histories of intellectual policing and power politics within movements to understand, to get a better grip on how it is that today people are often having the same kinds of fights. For example, the Quebec student strike, which obviously was a really important mobilisation in 2012, but the, I think, important work of racialized students in that context who are not only out on the streets and involved with the mobilisations of the movement there, but also challenging within the movement racism and particular assumptions that were dominant within that movement. And if we look at those kind of moments, we look at, for example, how do we learn in the context of the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement in relation to support for Palestine? How do we learn from, let's say, the boycott and the anti-apartheid movement? What are the lessons, not just the general lessons, what are the actual nitty gritty lessons that we can draw from trying to, whether it's talking to people or whether it's looking at what's been written, engaging critically with some of the histories or having to dig out because it hasn't been written different resources from the past. And that can be really, I think, important and instructive for people trying to figure out particular tensions that are going on at the moment. Again, thinking about state repression, if we know those histories in countries like Canada, much longer histories of repression, of surveillance, of infiltration, of movements, whether it's the Cold War, whether it's the targeting in so many ways of Indigenous peoples, 
We shouldn't be surprised when we find, lo and behold, there are undercover police or there's agent provocateur or there's all of this surveillance of contemporary movements. That historical perspective is really important to put into conversation with the dynamics of what's going on now. And that's not to say that it's not just about pulling stuff out of the past and applying it willy-nilly to what's going on in the present. But I do think that sort of critical historical perspective and again, I'm not talking about people having to run off and read a gazillion history books. There are other ways to, I think, engage with history, you know, intergenerational learning. I know I've learned a lot from people who are older than me, from people who were conscientious objectors in the Second World War, who were involved in anti-colonial struggles, pre-independence in different countries, etc., etc., etc. So, yeah, I do think there's that sort of dialectic between today and yesterday. And that's where I think there's also a way of perhaps avoiding unhealthy self-absorption in one's own experience. I do think people's personal experiences are important, but I think that it's that collective conversation and that sharing and thinking through together and acting with other people, which is so important. Talk to me a bit more about why you think that it's to the advantage of movements to take the time to think through a little bit more deliberately some of these questions about how teaching and learning and research and knowledge and so on happen in movement contexts and are central to the work that movements do. In the sort of hurly-burly of organising, often that is not a priority. It's like the next action, the next event, the particular campaign and so on and so forth. And it's difficult to pull back a bit and reflect in a way that isn't underscored by sometimes what feels like a ritualized process of how we do things here in this group or this movement. But I think it's also really important that we do have those kinds of conversations. How does that happen? It happens in different ways, whether it's the process that happens more in a social setting or whether it's in this sort of more intentional, deliberative process. But I think that going back to that issue of the relationship between history and today and tomorrow, that that is where being able to value that kind of work is important, not in some kind of abstract way, but that kind of work needs to really be seen as being vital for the life of the organisation or the organising and the struggle. It's something that is intrinsically or can be intrinsically seen as being part of you know, acting. So I don't think it's necessarily a luxury. There are lots of reasons, very valid reasons, why people don't and can't document experiences and struggles. I say that thinking about also the fact that one can't just assume important social movements as being ones where people are quote-unquote literate in the dominant sense of the word. There's lots of movements around the world that those histories are very much preserved through oral passing on of ideas and so on. But I think there's an important role of people being able to document and think through in some way whatever medium that's done in, their experiences and so on. Because one of the things I remember from the early days of when people started to write in a more academic sense about the movements against free trade agreements and the WTO and so on, I read some of the stuff academics had written about different movements I've been part of, and I thought, oh, they're really missing out some major questions and dynamics and details here. And there's a real danger of ideas and representations of movements and histories being born out of whatever you can find online or whatever you can find in particular kinds of spaces that end up informing newer or new activists or people who are interested in particular things. 
And I suppose that's one of the reasons why I ended up trying to document some of the work I've been involved in in anti-APEC organising, which was very much a history that in the course of writing that I was checking out with different people who were part of that struggle too, what their recollections and understandings were as well, so that we actually have those histories recorded in some kind of way. I think that work can be done and it is being done in lots of different spaces and places. It's certainly not by any means only happening in formal institutions of education. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of value in really trying to engage with those ideas that have been part of struggles on their own terms and to really see, okay, so what does this tell us about the world we're in today? Because I think very often if we look at some of the amazing histories of anti-colonial struggles in the global south or indigenous struggles, black liberation struggles in North America and in the UK and so on, there's a lot of history, there's a lot of ideas and a lot of things there that if you look at what's going on today, you go, mm-hmm, isn't it interesting that we don't remember that? Or isn't it interesting that we remember this? And what does this tell us about the interests in which knowledge gets produced, that history gets produced, not only in some sort of broader sense, but also in terms of what comes through what we would like to think of perhaps as being movement histories and networks. And that's why I think there's some really interesting work and important work going on in lots of different places to try and figure out how to come to terms with those kind of undocumented or more informal archives, if you want to call it that, or histories of movements or parts of movements or struggles that often have been marginalised or pushed to one side by other forces within movements or that have been criminalised by the state or for other reasons, don't make it into our memories and our understandings about how capitalist relations and colonial relations, gender relations, other forms of social relations play out today. The digging out of those conceptual resources of earlier struggles and of today's struggles is unfinished work. But I think it's important work because people do often encounter and generate and figure out some really, really important, profound I hesitate to use the word truths, but, you know, truths about society and the world and economic and political social power relations about what's going on in terms of the ecologic catastrophe that we feel like we're living in the day to day now. And I think that that work in different ways and small ways of trying to continue to find ways to document or support the documenting and the telling of those stories and the histories and what that might actually mean for thinking through the different challenges that we have, the struggles, the life and death struggles, to put it bluntly, for many people of today is important work. It's not the only kind of work, of course, that people can and should be doing. But I think if we do think about what we remember and what we forget about the struggles that we've been part of and who gets to write and whose voices and whose ideas are not there and why, then we start to really, or we continue to really grapple with some of the contradictions and the messiness of social change, which I think if we do get really stuck into, often comes up with some really important questions and challenges and ideas for us to continue to think through and struggle. Now, I don't think that work probably is ever done, but I do see, I think, in different ways, more and more people trying to figure some of that sort of stuff out. You have been listening to my interview with Aziz Chaudhry. He's a professor at McGill University and a longtime participant in movements for radical social transformation. We've been talking about his book, Learning Activism, The Intellectual Life of Contemporary Social Movements, published by University of Toronto Press. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. 
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.